some tears off my eyes and I, and I put it on his forehead. Listening to Let Your Voice Be Heard. It's a logical fallacy, and I, I know that, but, you know, as always, and maybe the rest of the panel can tell you, I play a bit of the uh, devil's advocate because I am the lone black Republican up here. He just made a fool out of himself. I mean, you can look at Dennis Rodman and think he's making a fool out of himself. We know Barack Obama, what he was like, anti-war, government, Boy, that escalated quickly. I got to jump into a rally to save a hospital here in Brooklyn in just a minute. I stopped working on my dissertation the second my grandmother died. I am a blazing liberal who can uh-huh. have a Republican-leaning ideology to give me enough beers. No, I got to get you that Illuminati thesaurus. Once you get that, you're going to be able to speak in the same language I can speak. Now, a white person with a criminal record is more likely to get a job than a black person without one. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. The point of financial stability and economic justice is that you're free from confines of society and you have more freedom and to make your own choices. Just in general, people who have money tend to have more access to resources to be able to use in their defense versus people that don't have money. So you see a lot of, you know, lower in, and that's really a class issue and and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. Yes, trick. Yes. Oh my god. Hey guys, what's going on? Good morning. Happy Sunday. Good morning. morning. Happy s- Memorial Day weekend. I said, "Hey, what's up? Hello. Are, are you ready for this new are you radio in a tra- show? Are you in a trap music mood? That's not even trap music. Soldier Boy hey, is real hip hop. Hey, what's up? Hello is. You missed our conversation um off air before you got here about Chris Rock. His like it's an old Chris Rock skit where he's talking about how women are against these dirty songs and then oh, they yeah. go to the club and then they're dancing. Obviously, I can't say what he said on the radio because it's not appropriate. Punch her in the face. Punch her in the face. <laughs> punch her in the face. <laughs> you go, but look what he's saying. He ain't talking about me. Selena said that to me one time in college. No, I did yes, not. My, did. my argument was... He's not talking about no, me. No, no, no. My <laughs> argument was there's not enough to choose from. When you that's go... that's the, They play mainstream hip-hop and mainstream hip-hop has happens to be saturated with misogyny. You know what song what am I supposed to adored do? Nicki Minaj's stupid... No, I didn't. I did not enjoy that story. And so me and Dustin called you out about it. He was like, oh, I'm against her now. Well, I was just reading an article about the use of the... Like the reclaiming of the B word because of Rihanna's song that's out. Mm-hmm. Now? Chick better have my money. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't. Is, is that the wave that the feminists are riding now? Chick uh, better have my money. What, reclaiming. I mean, re- reclaiming has always been sort of a thing in a lot of movements. I Wait, mean, did you hear the shade in Slim's voice? That's the trend that the feminists are following now. I don't think it's feminists. I think it's a lot of people that have been discriminated against. Worse no, I was just talking that. about the B word. Uh, no, I mean, just, I was just yeah. talking about the B word. And I'm saying, but what I'm saying is, I think there's other words that. The N word. That are people <laughs> want to take back. The N word. Uh, the the gay, gay people have a word that they have reclaimed as well. Um, but, anyways, who are you? Yes, so hi, ah, guys. Sick. And a welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on W. 3.3 FM. WHCR <laughs> 90.3 FM The voice of, of Harlem Of Harlem And you can always tweet us at Beheard underscore radio you I love Mansplaining to her this morning Yes I am mansplaining the intro That's what Thank I do Thank you for mansplaining that All So over. My name is Selena Hill And on Twitter And Instagram You can follow me at Miss Selena Hill But with an M-S People can You know Continually get that wrong They spell it M-I-S-S But it's M-S M-S Cause you gotta be different Like M-S-DOS yeah, like, like I messed that, right? up. Yes, son. Yep. Oh, snap. You, you loading up the Doom? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Spacebar, Spacebar, Spacebar. Slew doesn't know what we're talking I don't about. No idea. Half of Harlem has no idea what we're talking about. Right goodbye. over there. Who Anyways, knows? Um, my name is 
Alyssa Fuchs, and uh, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs with an I or the fan page, which is Politically Preposterous, uh, and on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs or at Poll Preposterous. Holding it down as always. And this is your favorite engineer on the PC123s and the iPad Air sitting right in front of me, Stanley Fritz. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz, where I talk about ratchetness, activism, and I tweet my bae. And also, <laughs> or my Twitter bae. Who's your Twitter bay? Oh, Sherelle Brown, Awkward Duck. Yeah, Awkward Duck. I told Duck. you about that. She don't. Oh, I ran into her best friend on um, Wednesday when I was um, I was hanging out with Cody Ann, our friend Cody Ann, who we're working on the web series, which I'll tell you about during the news roundup. Um, and I ran into them because I had on a hoodie, not a respectable Negro. But anyways, guys, today I'm feeling very adventurous, so I'm going to try new things like using facts and knowledge and logic. But if it gets too crazy, I have a safe word. It's chicken nuggets. If I say that, that means I do not want any more facts because facts are stupid. Don't forget that, guys, okay? And, yeah, that's about it for me. I'm like, who is Stanley today? Are you a are you he's a crazy Christian. GOP member? Yeah, he's, he's just being Christian Christian gay today. It's just got a safer. Well, guys, we actually have a great show lined up. Um, despite Stanley's chicken nuggets and whatever else, whether whatever else gibberish he's talking about, um, we're gonna start off the show asking the question: Did George W. Bush, your favorite president, psych? Create ISIS. Um, as we know, Jeb Bush got called out by this 19-year-old woman, and she basically said, your brother created ISIS. And then she just dropped, like, 10 different facts in one sentence on him. It was like, boom, like a drone, like a bomb. And he got a little flustered. But, you know, the one thing he did that I can respect in that ran, the opposite Rand Paul is he said to her, you know, I respectfully disagree. And he was willing to engage her versus, like, Rand Paul, he's always like, calm down, calm down, <laughs> calm it on down. <laughs> you got to calm down, woman. Come on, woman, don't make me show you something. So at least he gave her the benefit to, to engage her versus just telling her, like, to calm down. Well, she was, like, 19 years old. Do you remember when you were 19 you thought you knew everything but you were really dumb or was that just me i think that's you know that reminds me of the beginning of the newsroom where he's like he's like college student he's like if you ever manage to walk into a voting booth (laughs) there are some things that you need to know that's hilarious that is hilarious we were idiots when we were 19 I mean, it's funny because I feel like when we're 40, if we make it there, God willing, we're going to be like, we were idiots when we were in our 20s. Well, yeah, but at least I'm more sober now. Are you? (laughs) But are you? Uh, So speaking of Stanley and his sobriety, um, we're going to move on to uh, in the second half of the show. And we're going to talk about big banks paying up, but not really. So there was um, uh, the DOJ actually um, called out big banks, five of the world's top banks, um, saying that you guys have been engaging in market manipulation and foreign exchange rates for about over five years. And it was horrible. And um, it's corrupt. And they called them out and they have to pay, what, $5.7 billion collectively. Um, I don't think many people are going to jail. I don't think many people are losing their jobs. But they'll be paying paying that fine. And I'm pretty sure it's a slap on the wrist. And we're going to talk about why that happened, how it happened, and what actually has been going on since the economic downturn in 2008. Yeah, the whole biking, banking financial institution. And speaking of that, we're going to end this show talking about Stanley's favorite subject, or at least his favorite drink, Beer or is it risky? No, I'm, I'm, I'm or scotch. What is it against? Well, it's hard to choose between the three. But when I want to, well, they're just, so different. Sometimes yes. you want to have beer, and, and if you're drinking beer or if you're drinking liquor, you're drinking liquor. But yeah. today we're going to be talking about beer. 
And we're what gonna, about it? We're going to talk about uh, a piece of legislation that was proposed called the Fair Beer Act. Beer has to be fair. And when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, this seems really good. But there has to be a catch. And mm. um, I found the catch. Yes, you did. So I'm going to tell you what the Fair Beer Act is, what the catch is, and why I think we shouldn't actually support it. And I'm instead going to tell you about a piece of legislation that we should support in its place. I'm so looking forward to that. Oh, I had lunch with Dustin yesterday. And like, we're at Still, the you just throw random names at us like, oh. Well, Every, duck, everyone Dustin. knows. Everyone knows who Dustin is. He used to mm. be on the show with us for for a little bit until he got into an argument with someone who had over forty years of research <laughs> and experience and drug and drug policy and told the guy that he was wrong and then used the guy's own research to tell him he was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> then <I'm sorry. laughs> awkward. Yeah, it was but uh, awkward. Dustin and I had lunch yesterday and I'm there in the, at the bar and I'm like, you know, I want something light. Give me a whiskey neat. And then the bartender laughed at me because he's like, how is that even a light drink? That's not a light drink. At all. Yes, but that was just my one alcoholic moment of the day. Selena, you look really creepy. When you, <laughs> when she makes her eyes really big and like her teeth shine like that, I think she wants to stab me. What? I was listening to the story. And being creepy. Uh, maybe. So on that note, we're going to have to take a quick break. But when we come back. What if we don't want to? I want to. I, no one regardless what of what Stanley may Alyssa, want. Alyssa, can we vote on this? Who wants to go on a break right now? Raise your hand. Um, I mean, I could go on a break. I'm kind of indifferent. You know, Selena? I think we're going on a break. Whatever. Bye. Baby, won't you come my way? Got something I want to say. Okay. That was weird. I was all listening to that song. Yeah. I and then a, it just stopped playing. I had a really popping way to nothing. jump into the track. And it just did absolutely nothing. Exactly. But guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. War, what is it good for? Lots of oil money for Halliburton <laughs> and such. That's what it is good for. So, do we remember back in 2003 when we decided to go to war against Iraq because they had weapons of mass destruction and we had to protect America and the world from weapons of mass destruction. And then by 2005, we could not find the weapons of mass destruction. But that's not what we went to war for. We went to war to build democracy and freedom, remember? No one ever said a word about weapons of mass destruction. But do you also remember when we said we won the war and the mission was accomplished and we could leave? <laughs> but then all of a sudden, all these pesky American soldiers started dying. And we realized, oh, we had to stay here longer to build democracy. Because that's what the war was all about to begin with. And during this time period, we had all sorts of politicians who for some reason wanted to attack President George W. Bush about his war policy and going to Iraq. One person in particular, someone that Selena and Alyssa seem to like a lot, he was a rapper, um, I think he was in Chief Keef's group, um, Barack J. Kwan Hussein Obama, he has the latest mixtape Trap Music Part 3, Year 7. He said, I'm not against all wars, I'm against dumb wars. Well, guess what, Obama? This war isn't dumb. It isn't. Nope. Fast forward to 2008, President Obama's elected president. I don't know why they made a black guy president. We know that's never a good idea. And then he says we're going to pull out of Iraq. And then we sort of pull out of Iraq, but we don't really all the way. And all of a sudden, violence starts to shoot up again. Mm. And all of a sudden, you have all these new super terrorist groups popping up. And all of a sudden, there's this group named ISIS. And it sounds like a rap group, but no, it's not a rap group. They be in the trap, but they blow up the trap. <laughs> And they were taking over all parts of Iraq, and they had some parts of Syria that they were in, and they had started off as rebels in Syria, quote-unquote. 
and now everyone is saying Barack Obama is to blame for destroying Iraq because Iraq was fine when we went there and bombed it and destroyed everything and killed and the, their leader and got rid of the dictator and got rid of the military and destroyed their foundation and Iraq was totally fine when we had almost 200 deaths a day with American soldiers and Iraq was totally fine when we killed over 100,000 Iraqis that we're not going to count because hey who counts killing people that aren't American and also are not white right? If they're of color yes. they don't matter. Well what's color? This is black and white TV and if your name sounds somewhat Negro-ish or Muslim or gay or immigrant <laughs> you're like, out of here. I don't like that. You know what the gay names are. Priscilla. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I don't know what that means guys. I can't but but anyways so we come to 2015 and after ISIS had this big push in 2014 particularly the summer when they started taking over so much territory in Iraq and Americans got scared because they said ISIS can come and kill us because they beheaded somebody who was American and they didn't get that person from America they got that person because that person was in Iraq already ISIS can get to us so then the president and a coalition of other countries decided to strategically bomb Iraq to push ISIS back and that started to happen and then people were saying, oh, maybe we're winning the war against ISIS. And then for some reason, I don't know why, maybe because wars have up and downs in them, ISIS has started to take back some territories, which has made people afraid. Now, put all this together and we have George, excuse me, Jeb Bush, who wants to run for president for 2016. And they asked him the question, do you think going to Iraq was the right thing to do with everything we know now and with what ISIS is doing? And he says, well, yes, of course it is. And then you have this 19-year-old girl who thinks she knows everything. Pardon me, woman, young woman, who thinks she knows everything because she's 19 and probably had way too much whiskey. I like her. <laughs> and she says to him, your brother is to blame for Iraq, and he's the one that created ISIS. So we are here today because we want to figure out. Who's to blame for making ISIS? Should we blame the black guy, which is always the most fun slash easiest thing to do? Because if you're not going to arrest a black guy for no reason, and if you're not going to shoot him because he's unarmed, obviously scaring you, then you have to blame <laughs> him for something that's going on that's wrong in the world. And that's why we have someone who is actually way smarter than me, and he knows how to read, and he probably doesn't like brunch as much as I do, but that's okay because I forgive him for it, and he is going to help us with all of these questions that we have. And his name is, forgive me for butchering it in advance, Musa Al-Garbi, and he's the managing editor for the Southwest Initiative for the Study of Middle East Conflicts, S-I-S-M-E-C, holla at me. And his number is there. I'm not going to give it. So, Musa, thank you so much for calling into the show today. And how are you? Welcome back, Musa. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to dive into this with you. I am excited as well. Musa, can I ask you a question? Sure. If you had to choose between whiskey and beer, but you could only choose one, which one would it be? Okay, so I don't drink now because I'm a Muslim, but I wasn't always a Muslim. So I don't drink now. It's I'm, important to note. Okay, no. <laughs> yes. Whiskey would be the answer if you, I did drink. You see, because he knows. Okay, so what's the best What's the best meal you can have in the morning? Pardon? The best meal, like the best like breakfast meal you can have in the morning to get a good day going. Oh, yeah, just like simple toast peanut butter kind of thing. Uh, that sounds really not delicious. Not black coffee. What about pancakes? Pancakes are all right. All right. I'm good, good. All right, I'll let you rock a pancakes for now, okay? But anyways, let's get serious and let's talk about the things that are going on. So, obviously, we started the war in Iraq in 2003. It is 2015, and we are still there. And now we are dealing with the problem called ISIS. And the dilemma for Americans, or for President Obama, I should say, is that if we leave Iraq, ISIS more than likely we'll have all the opportunity to like continue to expand. But if we stay, we have to keep American troops there, and we have to keep spending money. Is that an accurate analysis of what's going on in ISIS right now in our in our dilemma? 
yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the, so most of the blame, uh, I guess we'll get into this later, but most of the blame for ISIS um, definitely belongs to Bush and Petraeus. But uh, the Obama administration shares some blame for it, for their policies. Um, ironically, though, the person that should be blamed within the Obama administration probably isn't uh, Barack Obama, because he didn't even like some of the policies that his administration ended up doing. It's actually probably more his Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who was a lot more aggressive on a lot of these um, policies with regards to Iraq and Libya. But So now we're in a weird situation in Syria, because we've, uh, and Iraq, because we've uh, sort of gone pretty... We've invested a lot in there, and so uh, it's very difficult for us to just sort of wash our hands of the situation, which is arguably <laughs> the, uh, the most effective thing we can do. Um, but it's difficult, you know, geopolitically and otherwise. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the trap here is that the more we sort of go in there heavy-handed, the more that that actually... Uh, feeds ISIS's narrative and serves ISIS's interests. I mean, what they really want, what they really, really want is for U.S. ground troops to be deployed to Iraq and Syria. And they've said this over and over again, and they're not joking or bluffing or, or anything like that. It's, it would be the, the biggest recruiting tool that they could possibly have, is to have the U.S. Um, deploy a bunch of ground troops into Iraq or Syria. See, that's what scares me, because they want this to happen so they can continue to build their base and recruit more people. And the question is, how did they even become to be like an existence? Because you, what you mentioned was that it was Bush and Petraeus who really should take like a big part of the blame for creating ISIS. What the heck were they doing in Iraq that caused this? Yeah, okay, so I can I can go over a few a few of the sort of major blunders. Um, so one of the main ones was that after they overthrew Saddam Hussein, they instituted this policy called debathification, which said anyone who was part of the former Ba'ath Party was barred from participation in the new government. And this was a problem because most of the people who were part of the Ba'ath Party weren't like diehard ideologues. They were part of the Ba'ath Party because that was the only way that you could get a government job. <laughs> so uh, what Bush did was basically banned anyone who had any experience or knew how to run a government in Iraq from running the government in Iraq. And uh, in, in their place, he imported a whole bunch of like Ivy League people from Stanford um, who had just graduated and they had no experience, no sort of specialized knowledge about the Middle East or Iraq. And so the government sort of uh, failed. And then at the same time, um, among the people who were, com who were barred from participating in the new government was the entire Iraqi army. They were forbidden from having any stake in the new government. They disbanded it, tried to recruit new people from the ground up. And so you had all these people. Um, and then they also didn't secure the arms depots after they invaded because they didn't want to put a whole bunch of heavy forces on the ground to secure them at first. They thought that um, they would be able to just sort of drive Saddam out of power and uh, most people would accept the new government. So they, they didn't have a lot of ground forces initially, and they didn't secure the arms depot. So you have a bunch of these people who were highly trained with weapons, who had access to weapons and had, who had no stake at all in the new government because they were banned from taking part in it, and no way to make money because the the sort of infrastructure of Iraq, uh, of Iraq collapsed after the um, invasion, in large part as a result of this inept administration by these, you know, people straight out of college. And so that's basically how the insurgency was born. Um, there is a recent report in Der Spiegel showing that uh, with um, documents that they got from 
ISIS, um, which showed that the main sort of leader in creating what we now know as ISIS wasn't al-Baghdadi, but instead this guy, Haji Bakr, who was a former general in Saddam Hussein's army. And, um, and uh, we'll get into a little bit later maybe how, how these Baathists and the uh, al-Qaeda people ended up sort of combining to make ISIS. But uh, Musa, I'm sorry. Holy, you, you just summarized like three and a half minutes of ineptitude from, from, the, from the Bush White House. Okay, so I have a lot of questions. I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible for our listeners and for Selena, who's already glazing over because she no, doesn't. No, I'm not. Selena, you're messing up my joke. Well, it was a horrible joke. Please keep me you, out of it. Like, you, see, you see what happens when <laughs> Selena doesn't support me? Anyways, so I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible. So the question is, so they wanted to go in there. They didn't want to. They assumed that if they just overthrew Saddam's government, that people would accept the new government. What information or intel did they have to make them think that? Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll say, okay, but first I have to tell you just how, how crazy. So it seems, it, it seems insane today to think that everyone would just embrace the new government, um, but but as a testimony of how firmly they believe this, the original NATO authorization to train and equip Iraqi forces was only for one month. One month. They literally thought it would only take one month to create a new army from the ground up because everyone would embrace the new government. And they had no plan for an insurgency. Um, the reason they believed this, well, the part of the reason they believed this was because they were... Um, uh, they had some people who used to live in Iraq decades ago uh, who were saying, yeah, you know, everyone hates Saddam, everyone hates Saddam. If you go in and overthrow um, Saddam, everyone will love you. Uh, so that's part of the reason, is they had some people who used to live in Iraq a long, long time ago who were dissidents of Saddam Hussein's regime who said that everyone thinks the same way I do, which is false. I mean, most of the time when you meet um, people from other countries living in America, uh, they might not be representative of everyone who lives in that country, right? And this is especially true, for instance, in Iran. Most of the people, most Iranians that you'll meet in America today are people who fled after the uh, Shah was overthrown when the Islamic government was instituted. And so most Iranians that you'll meet in America hate the, the, the government in Iran, but that is obviously, it's obviously not the case that most Iranians also hate the government in Iran, in fact, from most empirical evidence, most Iranians actually like the religious leadership in Iran. They have some problems sometimes with their political leaders, like Ahmadinejad, but they like it. So anyway, <laughs> there's a, there was this issue where they were relying too heavily on expatriates, on the testimony of expatriates who hadn't lived in Iraq for years, and they basically just took their word on it um, because it's something that they wanted to believe in the first place. Uh, what's more disturbing, perhaps more terrifying, is that the original plan wasn't just to um, get rid of Afghanistan and Iraq, but they planned on invading Iran, too. So the part of the beauty of getting rid of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan is both of those countries are on either side of Iran, and they planned on doing a trifecta, basically, and using their new forward operating bases that they set up in Afghanistan and Iraq 
to invade Iran, but they were prevented from doing this because of the insurgency. Wow. Could you imagine the kind of cluster that we'd have right now if they were able to invade Iran? My head is hurting. So, guys, if you are just tuning in, we are talking about who was to blame for ISIS, and I think everyone in this room and on the phone right now would agree that George Bush and David Petraeus had a huge part in the reason that ISIS exists today, and we are used, we are having this conversation with Musa al Gabi, and we, um, if you want to join into the conversation, you can call us at 212-650-6903, or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. I know Alyssa has been holding her breath for quite a while because she wants to say something. Alyssa? Yeah, good morning, Musa. This is Alyssa here. Um, I just want to go back for a second to something we were talking about, about Saddam. Um, and there's no discounting that Saddam was a dictator and that he did horrible things. But in some ways, do you think that the Iraqis maybe were sort of better off with Saddam than the sort of vacuum that we left there when uh, Saddam was toppled and there was no clear delineation of who was going to run the Iraqi government and that that power vacuum sort of helped to also create ISIS? Yeah, so the power vacuum definitely um, contributed to the insurgency. And, uh, you know, so the the thing about a lot of these um, autocrats is so there's a lot of people who dislike them, but there's usually a lot of people who like them as well. And they're not usually nearly as unpopular as they're portrayed as being. Um, so, for instance, Assad in Syria, Obama and lots of other people say, everyone hates Assad, you know, we've got to get Assad out of there. But, you know, from uh, if you do a, a quick, you know, if you do a contextualized study from the empirical data available, even NATO came to the conclusion that most of the population supports the Assad government, and only about 10% of the population actively supports the uprising. And it's this way in a lot of states. So um, so that's one thing. Uh, but another... Uh, what's interesting is that the insurgency against the United States was originally um, broad-based, and it wasn't sectarian. Both Sunni and Shia were attacking us. Uh, everyone hated us. Um, they might even the people who didn't like Saddam didn't want us there, and uh, so there was this very cynical policy put in place by Paul Bremer, and it went like this: the idea was to try to get a majority of the Iraqi population to embrace the new government, and so the way they did it was um, he created this sectarian system where everyone had to declare a religious sect on their official government form. Oh, my God. And political power and representation was afforded people, uh, afforded political parties according to their sect uh, affiliation. And this was novel in Iraq's history. So people had before were forbidden from, from um, declaring their sect. It was taboo in Iraqi society. Um, they didn't even, Iraq didn't, the Iraqi government under Saddam didn't even keep statistics on how many of who there were. Um, intersect marriages were very common in Iraq. But after the institution institution of these policies by Bremer, um, intersect marriages declined. Uh, people became geographically segregated. So the Sunnis started consolidating in certain areas, the Shia in certain areas, um, the Kurds. Uh, and then worse, the Kurds were given sort of a semi-autonomous state by Bremer, and the um, Arab Shia were the majority of the population, so they got, you know, um, the uh, overwhelming representation in the new government. But this kind of left Arab Sunnis out in the cold. Wow. So, 
Wow. So <clears> I'm moving <throat> lost for words of how badly this was this was this was this was, t- this was handled under Bush. <clears throat> but Musa, we do have to go on a quick break. When we come back, we have more questions for you. And particularly, I want to focus on the leader that the Bush administration planted to to, to watch over Iraq and all the problems he had with President Obama. But we're going on a quick break, guys. We'll be right back after this brief message. Hold on, wait a minute. Y'all thought I was finished. When I bought a ass tomorrow, y'all thought it was winning. Jetson on him. I'm like Papa on his finish. Double M, yeah, that's my T Rose. Hey, the captain, I'm lieutenant. I'm the type of cannon, casting, grind like I'm broke. Guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And if you're just tuning in, this is me, the always devastatingly handsome Stanley Fritz, in the studio with Alyssa Fuchs and Selena Cat Daddy Hill. Yes. And we are talking about whether George Bush was the reason that ISIS exists today. Right. And to help us with that conversation, we have Musa Al-Garbi, who I'm sure I'm butchering his name. And I want to thank <laughs> him in advance for not beating me up. I apologize. I will get it right. And... I want to jump back into the conversation, but first, Alyssa has an amazing comment from someone who spoke on the the politically preposterous. Alyssa, the floor is yours. Yeah, so uh, we got a comment from Deborah Shepard. She said, absolutely true. Obviously, she was answering the question, did George Bush create ISIS? And then she goes on to say, turn the tables. If another country had bombed us, killing close to a million of our citizens, we might all turn into terrorists. That's what's happening. Crazy people are coming after us because they're agitated, essentially. And then she said, while corporations reap huge profits along with top elected officials. So my question for Musa is, is there any sort of truth to what she's saying, which is, um, you know, we went in there and we killed a lot of people and, you know, we never maybe should have been involved. And so these people now feel like, you know, Americans did this to us and now we want to, you know, get back at them. And that's sort of another reason why you're seeing a rise in terrorism in within the group of ISIS. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually, it's interesting. I have a piece coming out in Al Jazeera um, next week, uh, which talks a little bit about which addresses a lot of the, the, the parts from that comment. Um, but definitely a lot of the resentment that people um, felt against America in Iraq and uh, later in Syria was as a result of U.S. policies in the region. It's not like people in Iraq... Well, <laughs> people in Iraq did hate, uh, hate America before the invasion, but that was because we had them under sanctions. When the, um, they were, like, starving to death and all of this. Uh, also based on a weapons of mass destruction program that, again... Saddam didn't have, um, so, you know, the, the state of the, of the people of Iraq, um, they were suffering. I mean, Iraq was a very advanced society, and they had, like, one of the better infrastructures in the Middle East, but it was tough. It was really tough to live, and that was mostly the fault of Western sanctions against them. So they, they hated America before we invaded, but they hated us a lot more as a result of us killing them, destroying their infrastructure, and, and uh, you know, setting up this sectarian system of government. Uh, et cetera, occupying their land. So, um, so yeah, I mean, most of the uh, most of the the reason that Iraqis say that has nothing to do with it's directly a result of U.S. policies. Speaking of U.S. policies, Musa, um, what do you say to people that say President Obama's policy, foreign policy, is um, is directly contributing to ISIS and more anti-American sentiment? We know that he has increased the drone program. Um, and that is is something that has caused devastation in uh, many parts of the Middle East. But, you know, I, I hear this argument a lot from people who also deny that President Bush played a role in creating ISIS. So um, it's uh, sort of like a two-part question. How do you address the arguments that Bush did not create ISIS and that it is Obama who has created ISIS and contributing to more people joining the ranks? Well, 
Yeah, so um, yeah, so on the first part, uh, people who want to deny that George Bush created ISIS, they usually, um, for one, they're just crazy. They're just ignoring history. I mean, the reason why there was an insurgency in Iraq, as I laid out very concisely, is because of the policies of the Bush administration after the invasion. But they have this narrative, this fairy tale, that Iraq was, sure, it was tough for a while, but then we did the surge, and the surge cured all of Iraq's problems, and if only the surge continued forever, then Iraq would be having car wash, bikini car washes and McDonald's today. But that's, um, that's a lie. So, uh, for, <laughs> for one, the, the so-called Anbar Awakening, when a lot of the population in the Sunni areas turned against Iraq, that started happening six months before the surge, and a lot of those awakening forces who were later armed and trained by the United States started defecting to Iraq, I mean to al-Qaeda, before the surge was even over. <laughs> so, um, so the idea that the surge cured all of your, in fact, in a lot of ways, the policies that were instituted during the surge led to a lot of these people joining al-Qaeda. It undermined the awakening. So this narrative, this fairy tale, is false. But basically that's how it goes, is that we have the surge, and then Obama drew down forces, and that created a vacuum, and that's what ISIS swept into. But that's a lie. Um, yeah, definitely. Musa, you know, speaking of that, I think that's sort of where Jeb Bush was going when he responded to the college student. I mean, he essentially tried to pawn off the blame on the Obama administration, and she sort of kept sticking to him. And then he responded by saying, quote, when we left Iraq, security had to be arranged, al-Qaeda had to be taken out, end quote. And then he went on to say, quote, there was a fragile system that could have been brought up to eliminate the sectarian violence. Do you think that and there's any truth to his comments, or is that, as you point out, also completely a lie? Uh, yeah, it's just not, it's not true. Um, so, but that said, the Obama administration... Um, did have some actions that they took which were which contributed to um, the rise of ISIS. So uh, some of them were expanding and, and continuing George Bush policies. For instance, um, the surge uh, and um, the drone campaign. Uh, but then some of them were sort of novel, new new actions taken by the Obama administration. Um, but they were largely, again, were largely driven by Hillary Clinton. At the time, Obama was very wary of a lot of the policies he ended up endorsing, and he did it very begrudgingly, and because of pressure from Republicans, and then also pressure from within his administration from more aggressive um, people like Clinton. So, for instance, uh, arming the, the rebels in Libya and Syria, most of uh, Obama didn't want to do that. A lot of military commanders didn't want to do that. Um, but Hillary Clinton did want to do that, and she ended up winning <laughs> that argument. And most of those weapons ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda. Most of those resources ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda. Most of the people we trained have defected to either al-Qaeda or ISIS. Um, and the, the same thing in, in, uh, in Libya. There was, uh, Libya was a disaster just like Iraq. There was this idea. In fact, it was worse than Iraq. It was this idea you could overthrow Gaddafi without putting boots on the ground, and a new government, a secular democratic government, would just self-organize as if by magic. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, Libya is a disaster. And of course it's a disaster. You can't just get rid of a government and then have a new one magically appear. Um, so it, but Obama didn't want to do Libya. Hillary Clinton wanted to do Libya. Um, 
So, and that's important. It's important to note because we're going into the 2016 election cycle, and the one who's responsible for a lot of these missteps is the one on the Democratic ticket, and the Republicans are even worse. So we need some kind of alternative candidate who's not going to be doubling down on these same terrible policies that created ISIS in order to fight ISIS. Uh, this sounds like everyone was popping a molly and well, when they were making these decisions. Musa, we have everyone in the studio like freaking out to talk right now. Before I throw it to Selena and Alyssa, I want to say you can call in. Our number is 212-650-6903. Again, that's 212-650-6903. You guys can go before you beat me up. Musa, you did a great job in explaining Hillary Clinton's role in um and, and why Obama made certain decisions in Libya um, in the Middle East and which and we're feeling the consequences now. But the question I wanted to raise is you just said we need a candidate that is not going to um, continue to um, have these campaigns, these drone campaigns and insurgencies that just lead to more chaos in the Middle East. What can. Yeah, I was. So when you said that, I was like, what <laughs> what candidate are you thinking about, Musa? Uh, oh, um, Musa, can you start so, start that answer again? Which which uh, candidate are you thinking about? Yeah, ironically, the only one on the table who's even sort of so you know you have Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul, but neither one of them I don't think stand a chance of winning their party's nomination necessarily, um, unless there's a big rally of public support behind them. Uh, and on the Republican side, that's a lot more difficult because they don't have a huge anti-war base, unfortunately. Um, but you know, what we need is to hopefully, uh, we have other voices in the Democratic Party that need to take a part in this debate. So hopefully we have some other people that jump into the race with different ideas that people can rally around. Because right now, if we just continue down our sort of, on the path we seem to be on of just coronating Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee, then the 2016 race is going to be a very bad election. I mean, both of the options are going to be pretty terrible. Mm, thank you for that. Alyssa, you had a comment? Go ahead. Yeah, no, you know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results. And it seems to me like this is just par for the course for America's. I mean, you know, you should have learned, I guess, in Vietnam that, you know, this is the lesson we should have learned. Stay out of, like, other people's business. I mean, you saw what happened with Vietnam, and there was sort of a cut and run at the end of the war, where they just loaded everybody up and got out of there. And we didn't do that in Iraq, and to some extent, I obviously think we shouldn't have been there in the first place, but once we were there, the just keeping going, keeping it going and keeping it going. And the thing, and to second that comment, aside from Iraq, the point that uh, Musa made about arming the rebels who have now essentially defected, I mean, that's something that we did in Afghanistan back in the 80s when we were using people to fight against the Soviets and then those people ended up with the weapons and then turned into the Taliban the Northern Alliance a lot of them defected and became members of the Taliban so you know it goes back to (laughs) the picture is even worse than that so part of the reason why Obama was hesitant to arm the rebels in Syria and Libya was because he commissioned the CIA report and this is on the New York Times Uh, so the CIA report looked at every single instance in U.S. history, where we have tried to arm and fund these rebel proxy groups to achieve different political goals. And their conclusion was that it never works. It literally never works. The only one time when it did work was when we armed and trained the Mujahideen to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And that's seen as a paradigm example of what can go wrong in this case, because basically 
um, all of those people we armed and trained, the domestic fighters from Afghanistan became the Taliban, and the foreign fighters who went to Afghanistan became al-Qaeda. So um, the, the one time when arming proxies worked, it created al-Qaeda and the Taliban. <laughs> so it's, there's literally not one single example in all of U.S. history, and we've done this a lot, where this has worked. But what is the solution to ISIS, according to a lot of these people? Oh, we need to arm and train more of these rebels. It's a terrible idea. It's a really terrible idea. It's always a terrible idea. I think we've learned that. So, Musa, just really quickly, because we have to wrap this segment up now, can you just, what do you think it'll take to get us out of this situation? What does America need to do from now to kind of, like, back out of this and avoid any other issues, avoid as many issues as possible? Yeah, um, so I talked about this a little bit in, 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 in some of my pieces. Um, so one of the main, the main things that we need to do, uh, we need to stop arming arming um, non-state actors immediately. Uh, we need to partner with, uh, we need to um, put pressure, uh, change the way we do business with a lot of Middle East autocrats, and uh, that could, for a couple reasons. One, to pressure them to stop funding non-state actors by providing a lot of our aid on a more conditional basis instead of blank checks. And then two, because right now our alliance with these people is a big part of the propaganda from groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that the U.S. supports dictators and um, monarchs and autocrats in the Middle East. So we need to stop doing that. Um, And uh, in addition, um, we need to uh, probably partner with. Uh, we need to sort of make our peace with Assad. He's not. He's not going to go. We don't need to support Assad because, again, that's been part of the problem. <laughs> but we we need to. Um, we're we're not going to overthrow him. We shouldn't overthrow him um, with direct intervention, and we shouldn't be uh, arming people to overthrow him. We should let that play out, however it is, and then um, support a negotiated settlement provide humanitarian assistance and intervention to help Syria rebuild and restructure uh, after it sorts itself out. Um, but the problem of terrorism, ironically, it's, it's, you know, it's radically inflated, uh, the threat that we face from terrorism, and it's something that can be dealt with mostly over here. We don't need to be over there. A lot of the things we do over there make the problem of terrorism worse. So, uh, so those are some cursory things, but I, I saw it out uh, in more detail in some of my other articles. That, thank you for mentioning that, actually, because I want you to let the listeners know where they can find some of your articles so they can c- continue to read up on this, especially the article coming out in Al Jazeera in the next couple of days. Yep. Um, so my website is um, fiatsofia.com F-I-A-T-S-O-P-H-I-A.com Thank you so much, Musa. Musa, I think you should run for office. Right. I mean, maybe... <laughs> Maybe we'll have a chance there. I don't know. Well, I want to hear your well, policy we got on day drinking. The same, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for calling in once again, and we look forward to having you on the show another time to talk about good things. Hopefully, all right. Yeah, control. Thank you, thank you. All right, guys, so that was a conversation on whether Bush started ISIS, and I think it's very clear that he did. And I want to close this segment out with just a bit of a story that Selena nor Alyssa will find relevant, but hopefully at the end of it they'll go, oh, that's what you were doing. When I was 19 years old, I worked at this, rest- this shop on 42nd Street. Um, I think it was Grand Central Station. 
and it was a pie shop. It was called Little Pie Shop. And Little Pie Shop was great because they had all these amazing pastries and cakes and candies that you could have. Well, you pay for them, but you can get them. And in the back, you had to go into this big, like, eight-foot oven and, like, take out the, the cakes and the pies to put them in the front. And they always told you, be very careful because if you, like, when you pulled out a pie, you wouldn't just pull out one pie. You'd pull out a roll of pies and all different pies and cakes. And they always said, be careful. Don't be too fast about it. Don't be, like, too frantic. Make sure you're paying attention and be careful because if you mess up the cakes, they're yours. You have to pay for them. And in theory, like, who, who doesn't want cake? Cake is great. Cake tastes good. Pies are awesome. You give them to your friends and your family. And that idea is amazing. But then when... You pull out a roll and you mess it up. You got to pay for it. So, so that happened to me one time. I pulled out a roll way too fast and I scratched off the top layer of all the pies. And they, they said they were going to take it out of my check. $300. You know how much I got paid at that time? Probably $400 every two weeks. So that was pretty much all of my check gone. And I, and I tell that story because that's what we're doing in Iraq right now. We're going into a situation where we don't necessarily have a strong plan, where we haven't thought everything out, where we're rushing because we think that we got to get something done, and then we're destroying the whole top layer. And when you break something that's not yours to begin with and it belongs to someone else, you have to fix it. And this system is broken, and we continue to break it, and we try to walk away, and we cannot. So whether we like it or not, we're going to be in Iraq for a long time because we broke a system that may not have been the best, but it was working, and now we have to fix it. And until that happens, the day when we fix it, we're going to be stuck in there. So whether it's Bush's fault, which it is, or Obama's fault, which he has some fault in there, or it's Clinton's fault, which he definitely has some fault in there as well, we have officially broken it. It is shattered to pieces, and now we are all right here together trying to put the mess together while pointing out someone who did something wrong. Well, guess what? It doesn't even matter anymore. So, guys, we're going to go on a quick break. When we come back, it'll be the news roundup, but thank you so much for joining us for this great discussion. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Enjoy the trap music. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. And if you're wondering what that was, that is Pink Floyd Money. Yes. And that was a great segue into the conversation we're going to have. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz and Alyssa Fuchs. And we're going to talk about money, corruption, and big banks. Chicken nuggets. I, I can't do it. I don't want to talk about this. No. You do. No, I don't You have- are been dying to talk about this all week, Stanley, apparently. So let me just fill you guys in. And hold on. Let me give you the phone number. Because if you want to call in, you can call 212-650-6903. You can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And you can leave a comment on Politically Preposterous on on Facebook. So, five of the world's largest banks, that includes Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Barclays, and the Royal Bank of Scotland, they were fined about $5.7 billion collectively for conspiring to manipulate the price of US dollars and euros exchanged in the foreign currency market. So, um, Citigroup has been charged the most, 900 $925 million. Um, Chase will have to cough up $550 million. And Barclays will have to pay $650 million. That's a lot of money. But for these big banks who make, like, um, billion-dollar profits, I don't know how, how big of a deal it is for them. 
but I digress. So the four banks that I just mentioned in the beginning, they have also pleaded guilty to federal charges over manipulation of foreign exchange rates. That means that they admitted like, okay, you got us. We did something wrong. We are guilty. Um, the fifth bank, which is Switzerland's UBS AG, they pleaded guilty to rigging benchmark interest rates. So how and why did they plead guilty? Because the Department of Justice cracked down on these banks and they released a statement uh, not too long ago saying uh, talking about this settlement and also the corrupt practices that the banks have been engaging in. So according to the DOJ, the banks describe themselves as members of the cartel, which is a really cool undercover name, by the way. So they were all going, they were like just calling themselves the cartel and they were using code words, not code words like thug, but different type of code words. Um, and they were in these like, Electronic snap. Remember, remember when you used to use like AOL chats. Yeah. So they were talking to each other via electronic chat, um, electronic chat under the cartel, and they would use code words to manipulate the currency exchange market for over five years. Wait, so like they were manipulating like interest rates. So like so they instead of letting the market dictate that right now the economy is bad, so the interest rate needs to be two point seven percent. They would all say we're going to make our interest rate ten point ten percent, and no one can argue with it because we're the biggest bank, so we'll <laughs> set the market. Pretty much, but so, so they probably stole since like they were doing this for at least the last ten years, trillions of dollars, trillions thugs. of dollars. The thugs. If you want to use the word thugs, maybe this is the appropriate time. So they did it from 2007 to 2013, according to the DOJ. So that's just like about nine years. Six. Then. Six. Pardon, well, I was way off. I mean, it's so messed up because like our criminal justice system is so corrupt that when you commit large scale white collar crime, nobody goes to jail. But if you're black and you get caught on a 126th Street with a single bag of marijuana, you could spend 24 <laughs> hours in jail. Or if you're homeless, you can maybe get sent to Rikers Island where you could die because you overheat. But Wait. big banks, no, nobody goes to jail. Wait, Selena, but like they they had to pay billions each, but they probably made trillions of dollars off of this. Exactly. How? No, but to follow up on Alyssa, hey, if you happen to be black and you're selling Lucy's and the government is not collecting that tax, oh, you're going to jail, buddy. No, you're getting we're, choked to death. We're gonna take you down if you don't. If we don't kill you first. What? But if you're stealing billions of dollars from people and ripping people off and causing an economic downturn, oh, slap on the wrist. So let me continue. Um, so in a statement, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, she actually said that the currency manipulation, and I quote, inflated the bank's profits while harming countless consumers, investors, and institutions around the globe, from pension funds to major corporations and including the bank's own customers. I mean, how many of you either bank with Citigroup or Chase, right? So that includes us. Um, although the parties involved in the criminal activity, um, she also said that some of them will be sent to, to prison. She asserted that these hefty fines and additional oversight will deter all these banks from ever corrupting uh, yeah, ever participating okay. in corruption what? again. Well, yeah, how okay. many times have we given hefty fines in the last 10 years and they still do new things? Oh, my God. It sounds like the first segment, Insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again and Bro. expecting different results. Dude, you can go to jail for, like, not paying your taxes for, like, a year. Right. So, before I introduce the guests, lastly, I want to say that the banks also agreed to what the DOJ called three years of corporate probation, which includes <laughs> federal court supervision. Alyssa's laughing. Is this just, like, not even real? It's like, Alyssa, joke. Is it a joke, Alyssa? It's a joke. It, it, it's a joke. Okay, I'm going to introduce our guests now. I don't know. 
they're going like, to be under oversight. It's not funny, but it's funny, but it's really not funny. Dude, you have people right now doing 10 years for a gun yeah. that they never use or someone doing five years because they had some crack. Or someone doing a year because they had a condom and they're a woman. With very small exception, you know, obviously Bernie Madoff got 99 years or something. But with very small exception, when somebody actually does go to jail, it's usually not for very long. And it's usually at a nice, cozy, minimum security federal facility, also known as camp. I thought you were going to say a club. I thought you were going to say a friend who was a federal prisoner. Like a country club. He committed a white collar crime. He wrote me. He said, This is club fed. We have a baseball league. We have classes. We have Wi Fi internet. He he said, Well, all the federal prisons have internet. Just yeah. to note, yeah. even the maximum security. We don't even he said he said that the prison had better resources than the college. Oh my at. goodness! I believe that. Horrible. So, without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Michael Mandel. He is the chief economic strategist at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington D.C. He also recently testified before Congress on the impact of regulation on innovation, and he received his Ph.D. in economics from Harvard University. Dr. Mandel, we are so upset, but welcome to the show. I can imagine why you're upset. You're, you're upset for a good reason. I think you pegged it right on the nose, that, that these big fines aren't going to do very much. They sound enormous to us, but to these banks, they're not. Right. It's, it's just basically a slap on the wh- a wrist. It, it's, a cost of, it's the cost of doing business. Right. Uh, I, call, I, call, I call what these, you know, what the Department of Justice got them for is collusion, but what I call these is information crimes. That what these that that what these traders are basically doing is is manipulating manipulating information in the markets and making the markets behave differently than they should, and uh, and we all depend on you know we all depend on honest information and 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 committing an information crime is is a, is a crime against all of us. Dr. Mandel, can you explain further what exactly does it mean to engage in market manipulation? Well, what's happening is that, uh, that that these traders, these these banks, these big banks, control a lot of funds that they're investing in, say, dollars, or they're investing in euros, and they can make an agreement. The cartel apparently would make an agreement that they would all, maybe all, jump into the market and buy at the same time, and that would say drive up the value of the dollar. It doesn't have to be very much. I mean, these guys deal in sort of microscopic amounts. But if they know that the value is going to jump at a particular time, they can all make bets in that way and kind of collect collect a lot um, on what is really sort of very small movements that nobody can see. So imagine that uh, that you were going out and that you're going to go uh, to your to your uh, nearest store and that you're going to all sort of decide to sort of buy out all the the bottled water at the same time, when you knew that people needed bottled water. And at that point, you could corner the market on it instead of sell it for a higher price. And that's what these guys were doing. They would know what the other traders in the market were going to do. They could prepare for it, and therefore they could make money off of the market movements. Right. Um, So can you explain... Exactly. What is, for, for those who don't know, what is the foreign exchange market You're itself? giving me a hard task here on a Sunday of Memorial Am Day. I? So, so <laughs> but, you know, we, the, 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 the uh, dollar is exchanged against euros at a particular rate. I can't remember what it is right now. Um, and so you could go into, if you were going to go travel in Europe, you could go 
go over to Europe and say, I'm going to want this number of dollars and I'm going to want this number of euros for it. Now, how do anybody know what the exchange rate is? Well, what happens is there's a market that tells you what the exchange rate is. And that market, everybody assumes, kind of moves by itself. But if people are controlling it, then they can uh, uh, make bets uh, against what's going, what's going to happen in the future, and kind of collect on the, to sort of basically sort of rig the bets. Um, and we're talking about a market that is difficult to explain to sort of the ordinary person, and it's even difficult for regulators to explain. So at the time when this is happening, the regulators didn't know that there was a problem, and it's tough for anybody to see. And the only way you get them is if what happens is if there's tape recordings or online records that these people actually colluded. So they could, without meaning to feed anybody's paranoia, but there could be a lot more of this going on that hasn't that hasn't come out yet. Oh wow! Oh, for Look, sure. I believe it definitely. Okay. So they they can still be doing these undercover they, practices. They could be still be doing it, and they could be smarter. The the feeling that you get is, you know, you go around and you call yourself the cardinal. It's like you know you're pointing a big arrow at yourself. You know, come come get me, right? The smart the the, the smart corrupt people don't go around calling themselves the cardinal. Right. Okay. <laughs> You know, maybe they're meeting for lunch or something, or they're doing something that doesn't involve that doesn't involve so much uh, so much blatancy. But the real problem is is that the large banks even came out of the financial crisis with more power and concentration than they went into it with, and it's frustrating even for those of us who are basic. I mean, I'm going to put myself in this camp who basically think that 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 this economy runs reasonably well. Um, but it's frustrating to sort of look at what's happened in the banking industry and say, you know, these banks were the cause of the financial crisis and the recession, and they've come out, the big banks have come out of it stronger than they were going in. So it isn't even that they weren't punished, but in fact, the ones that survived ended up being rewarded. And it and this sort of fine is, as you say, a slap on the wrist to um, to these to these large institutions. Right. And the, pro- and the problem is, is that you know the government tried to pass a set of regulations called Dodd Frank to get it under control, and it really doesn't look like it, you know, really accomplished what. It should have. Right, guys, if you're just tuning in, we have on the line with us Dr. Michael Mandel. He is the chief um, economic strategist at the Progressive Policy Institute. Um, you know, we, we talked about a little bit the, the market, manipula- uh, market manipulation. manipulation and how it affects the bank's customers. But does that have like a effect on us and like average everyday people, um, doctor? <laughs> that's such a good. That's such a good question, right? So, you know, you, you know, your listeners might be saying, "Well, you know, I never have anything to do do with euros anyhow, so why should I care?" Right? But if you're buying something that maybe was imported from Europe, you know, whether it's a car or some coffee or almost anything, then if the company that made it originally was affected by this then you're affected uh, indirectly because the price has gone up. So it's almost like stealing, you know, a penny or two from everybody. So if we stole a penny, so let's suppose that we stole 10 cents from all 
300 million people in the country. And so you sold tens of cents, and then you've got $30 million. And, you know, nobody's going to sort of feel a loss of that 10 cents in their pocket, but altogether it amounts to a lot of money. And it's the same thing here. This sort of, this sort of corruption is about taking dimes and nickels and dollars and $10 from a lot of different places and adding it all up so that no one person sort of knows um, uh, how badly they've been hurt. You know, for example, on the interest rates, right? So part of one of the uh, banks that were fined was also fined for doing interest rate manipulation. And interest rate manipulation, you can understand. You've got a credit card, and the rate on that credit card is partly set in the market. And so even if it's a little adjustment that makes it a little bit higher than it should be, you end up paying a bit more, the person next to you ends up paying a bit more, and so forth. But even worse than the money, what's really lost here is trust. Mm. Because, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was listening to what you were saying at the beginning. What's lost here is absolutely trust. The only thing that makes, you know, the world run right is you have to sort of trust the people that you're dealing with. You have to trust the companies and so forth. If you don't trust them, if you don't trust the banks, then what happens, it just, it just erodes everything. And the problem is, is that, you know, the people running the banks can say and be quite honest and sort of say, well, we don't like this and so forth. But all the incentives for the employees at the bank, the traders especially, is to find corners to cut, is to find, is to try to find a way of beating the system. And these guys went over the edge so much that nobody could ignore them. I mean, I'll go back to the end. You know, calling yourself the cardinal. Okay, it's like, <laughs> who would do that? <laughs> no, it's, it's ridiculous. Think, think about that. Think about that. If you were really trying to conceal yourself, why would you call yourself the Cardinal? But, Mike, I think you and I should join, make a band and call it the Cardinal, and we'll play music in the front side, but in the back we'll go and we'll take pennies from every person's purchase of our in, tickets. So in we in can the be- audience, that's right. I mean, yes. That would be, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sort of sitting here thinking about, what what goes through your what you know what goes through your mind that you're going to call yourself that you're going to engage in collusion and antitrust and and corruption and call yourself and call yourself the cardinal? <laughs> you know you're not going to get in trouble. So we, we Mike, just hold on for one second. We're going to start that band, but we do have to go on a quick break. I'm playing this next song for Selena because she wants to talk about the commas. Commas bringing drama for your mama right now. This is let your voice be heard on 98.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Thanks to doing more than just messing up some commas. They're messing up. <laughs> was that the, <laughs> the best whole, you could do, Selena? I'm sorry. I, I was trying to correlate between that last song I mean, it's and, just and, and, and the banking um, <laughs> crisis and what they've been doing with market manipulation. With the commas for your mama. I, right? I, and it's I just like so blatant that they really don't care, as yeah. you guess points out. The like they name themselves after a criminal enterprise, so they obviously have some hubris to think that like not only do we not care if we get caught, we know if we get caught, nobody's going to get in trouble. They're the Bobby Schmurter like of the banking the, system. Like, you I know, just, we call that chutzpah. Yes, chutzpah. Um, 
I just I just inflated the interest rate like a week ago. Um, so we're back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. We're right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. I'm Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz, Alyssa Fuchs. On the line with us is Dr. Michael Mandel. He's the chief economic strategist at the um, Progressive Policy Institute. And I know Stanley had a question. Yes, I do have a question. But before I ask the question, I want you to know that we are starting this band. It will be called the cartel. We will make trillions of dollars. And when the government comes for us, we're just going to just say that they're profiling rich people and that we are <laughs> victims. And they will only fine us $100. Do you know why? Because America, Michael. America. America. Yes. America. But no, my, we will start that band for sure. Yes. And the, my question for you also, and in that band, we will be drinking beer and whiskey. But the, the question that I have is about the Dodd-Frank Act. So now, as we all know, the socialist Barack Obama made, made his bill with his bare hands called the Dodd-Frank Act, which was supposed to make the banks not make money anymore because obviously Obama hates America. Why is it not working? Because what the, because what the Dodd-Frank en- bill ended up doing was it ended up putting on a lot of extra regulations but without changing anything structural. And the problem is, is that when you put on more regulations, the banks that can deal with the regulations best are the big banks because they can hire lots of people to sort of deal with them, whereas the smaller banks have a lot more trouble dealing with the layers of regulation. So this, ended, you know, it's, this, this has ended up not, I mean, in my view, the, the Dodd-Frank has ended up not fixing the structural problems um, while still kind of making things more gluey than they were before and perhaps harder for uh, ordinary people to get loans. It's hard to say at this point, but that might be one of the one of the consequences. And, you know, you can sort of look at this, you can look at this and say, we one of our big needs is to sort of extend banking services to the people that are unbanked right now uh, who can't get who can't get bank accounts, who have to sort of go through expensive payday loan services and so forth. And it's possible that Dodd-Frank actually makes that more difficult by putting on more regulations at the same time that it doesn't actually fix the big bank problem. So I think one of the biggest disappointments at this point is that, for me, for the Obama administration, is that they did not that they did not fix the they did not fix the big bank problem. There there were proposals out there for how you sort of separate out, you know, make the banks more manageable. But the place where we seem to have ended up is is um, uh, uh, that the big banks got bigger. Right. I mean, to me, that's actually a direct result of the Clinton repeal of Glass-Steagall, which allowed the regular banks and investment banks to merge together to become huge banks. And uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, Dodd-Frank, as our guest pointed out, like it's not Glass-Steagall. And I don't know if they had the political support to pass a Glass-Steagall bill, but that's really what I think probably was needed. Uh, if you're listening to this conversation, you want to join in. Our number is 212-650-6903. Um, our guest also mentioned something about payday loans and people who are underserved within banking. We actually did an entire show or segment. A few we did an entire segment on that a few weeks ago. So if you're interested, you should definitely head over to lyvbh.com, check out our archive shows, and listen to the show on payday lending. Um, with that being said, Dr. Mandel, hi, my name is Alyssa. I'm the resident lawyer here, and um, I deal with all, thanks. I deal with a lot of stuff about the criminal justice system, as I you might have 
heard or, you know, assumed after listening to my rant at the beginning. Um, but to me, there's no accountability. Like if you commit a grand larceny, if you work at a, a bodega, right, and you skim a few few cents out of the cash register every time you go into work, eventually your boss gets your boss catches you and he, you know, presumably calls the police and then you get arrested for grand larceny and they add up all the pennies that you have been stealing over this amount of time. And if the amount in New York is over a certain threshold, that's a grand larceny. It's a felony. And you get charged. You go to court and you potentially go to jail um, where these big banks, they pay the fines. And I know we've mentioned their slaps on the wrist, but um, I was hoping that you could give us some perspective because I've heard when HSBC pled guilty to the money laundering thing, I think that was a few years back, people said that the fine they paid was like the amount of money that they made in a week. Um, so when you put it into perspective, the fine was actually quite small. So could you answer for us or give us some perspective about the fines and the slap on the wrist aspect, but also answer the question, why does nobody go to jail? Right. So let's actually go for the first question, for, uh, for the, 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 the second question first, okay? Look, it is possible, you know, these banks could be prosecuted in a way that would actually put them out of business, right? So that if the if you, uh, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure of this. I'm going to be honest, but I but, but you know a lot of the if you sort of actually sort of accuse the bank of a felony, okay, you know you can make it possible for them to not do business, and so it's you know the the prosecutors are stuck in a place where that if they actually went after sort of the core of these banks, okay, that that they could sort of cause massive sort of business destruction. And so in some sense, they're constrained. Um, the other, so because they're sort of facing this, this problem. So, you know, the real question here is, is how do you stop it from happening again? Because it's a different set of people it's a different set of issues, and but it's the same bank. And how do you make sure that the next generation doesn't do it? And the only way you can do that is by changing the incentives of the workers, because in some sense for them, it's they, they make a lot of money, and the chances of being caught are really kind of low. Um, and and people have wrestled with this question: how you change the incentives. Uh, and nobody's got a really good nobody's got a really good answer at this point. And um, right, it may very well be that somebody's going to go to jail. But you know, even if somebody went to jail at this point, it isn't going to be the um, uh, it isn't going to be the people at the top. Like yeah, Jamie Dimon's not going to jail. Definitely not. Right. So, so, so speaking of that, Dr. Mantel, uh, from my understanding, and you touched upon it, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission actually issued waivers so that the criminal banks would not be barred from managing mutual funds, um, corporate pension plans, or even other regulated financial entities. So basically, that means that there are no practical consequences besides the fines whatsoever. Um, if you have the Securities and Exchange Commission stepping in to this level and degree to basically protect the banks. Mind you, the DOJ did not um, release this settlement and actually close the deal until the Securities and Exchange Commissions issued that waiver so that no one would really feel any particular consequence. So it's like, do you think that with these hefty fines and the negative publicity, is that enough to deter them? Because it's like no one, it, there's, not, there's no real accountability from my understanding. 
So let's actually back up one second. So let's suppose this is why this is a problem. Okay, let's suppose that let's suppose we put one of the banks out of business. All right, and let's just you know that let's suppose that the the, the DRJ said, okay, you. I'm not going to name a particular bank. You, particular bank, were sufficiently egregious. We're going to put you out of business. Well, what that means now is that you have that you have fewer big banks competing than you did before. You see what the problem is? is that, Great point. Is that is that the the cure at that point is actually worse than mm. so the right. criminal justice system is actually not well set up to dealing with this problem. And in some sense, um, there were decisions that were made at the time of the financial crisis that it was more important to support support the financial system so that the recession wouldn't get worse than to actually make changes that could have extended the, the length of the crisis while actually fixing some of the underlying problems. And who is to say that that wasn't the right decision at the time? The problem is we have to sort of deal with the consequences now, which is these large banks making a lot of money. So maybe nationalizing banks wasn't such a bad idea after all? Is that is that what we can kind of like take from this? I'm not sure. I would not have wanted the government to be running the, the, the banking system either. Um, what would be more, you know, the, the real question from my point of view, and it may not work for you guys. Again, real question from my point of view. How did we get in a situation where the financial system is so important to begin with? Because in some sense, the financial system should just be like plumbing, all right? And yeah, you want your plumbing not to drip. You want to be able to turn off and on the water. But it's not like the financial system makes anything, okay? Now, for the parts of the financial system where you and I are sort of saving, you know, maybe the mutual funds, some parts of the mutual fund industry work really well. Um, some parts of, you know, some parts of the financial system kind of do what they're supposed to. There appear to be, you know, quite a bit of competition. Um, there's a lot of different mutual funds, small and large, that you can go to. On the other hand, some parts of the financial system appear to, it's a little bit hard to understand exactly what they're doing, but they just seem to be out of proportion with the rest of the, with the rest of the economy. Um, and that's an issue that we're all sort of wrestling with. I mean, I should be, you know, be completely honest. There's been part times that, you know, that I've sort of looked and said, oh, yeah, the, 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 all the financial innovations are really seem to be helping. Um, but right now I kind of lean a little bit more. What I'd like to see is financial innovations that actually help the real economy rather than helping the financial sector. Mm. And... You know, if you think about that, that, one of the places I look is I sort of say, well, how can you provide better banking services for the people who are unbanked at a reasonable cost? And you should be able to do that. And you should be able to do that without having it be extractive, without having it, you know, without having people make a lot of profit. That really benefits individuals. Right. And why aren't we working on stuff like that? And why aren't we, you know, better funding for new businesses? Right. And better funding for expansion. And so you have this feeling that something is out of skew, of which this corruption is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And asking ourselves, are we weird? Is it, is the, we, 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 I mean, I'm going to be kind of blunt about it. You know, 
if we thought the financial system was doing the other things that we needed it to do, a little bit of corruption is kind of an acceptable price. There's kind of corruption in every part of the economy. And we want but so, 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 Dr. Mantel, um, we actually have to wrap this conversation up, but you touched upon some key things, and I wanted you to, if you could just give us, um, this is one last question, brief synopsis on what we can do moving forward, what we can all be investing in uh, or pushing um, if it comes to legislation. Um, I mean, I'm just hoping that there's some type of solution here, especially on and how we how the foreign exchange market can be regulated. What, what I, I wouldn't worry so much about the foreign okay. exchange market. What I said to ask is, how can we have the financial system provide the services to individuals and small companies that the individuals and small companies really need? And focus on the positive aspects of this. Because you could drive yourself crazy thinking about the the foreign exchange market and you wouldn't get anywhere. But you really have to ask yourself, you know, how to get individuals the banking services they need, how to get students the services they need, how to get people that are moving into into, into into the world, starting businesses, how to get them the financial services they need in a reasonable and cheap fashion that doesn't seem extractive. The same thing. The same thing true for sort of localities, of the public sector. How can they get you know little cities and towns and so forth get the financial services they need, and that's really and that's really where we need to sort of be heading at this point is thinking about the future and how to make things better, um, because um, you could just drive yourself crazy thinking about some of these other things. Dr. Mandel, um, tell our listeners how they can find you, reach you, or and get in contact with the Progressive Policy Institute. Well, the Progressive Policy Institute is progressivepolicy.org uh, on the web. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Michael Mandel. Thank you so much for being a guest. We definitely enjoyed this conversation and you sharing our, your expertise with us and our listeners. Um, I just want to wrap things up really quickly to the Truffle Bottle song in the background. It's okay, Stanley. Um, so the economic downturn of 2008, um, there's some correlation, but it had nothing in particular to do with the crisis at hand that we discussed today. It just so happens that some of the same institutions that contributed to the financial crisis have also engaged in these corrupt practices um, of market manipulation, and they got caught. So what happened? Eric Holder wants to complete his legacy, and he wants to say that, look, I'm cracking down on the banks, and you know what? I got them to plead guilty. So you know what, what's going to happen? They're not going to go to jail. We're not going to keep them from um, engaging in uh, or, or managing mutual funds, even though they've proven themselves to, to be untrustworthy. We're just going to slap them with a fine. And even and we're going to put the word million and billion behind it. Hopefully that is sounds appealing and it sounds like that's a just punishment. But when we look at things from a larger scale, we realize that these fines are just a slap on the wrist. However, so... Just want to add this last thing that it can be argued that the lack of significant regulation and impunity on the part of the bankers was also a major contributing factor to the the current crisis at hand, which is why we need more regulation. And also, I do want to just echo what Dr. Mandel said when he said that we can also focus on some of the positive aspects of it. Uh, We can also engage in. Um, smaller banking. Um, there are different options. I know in Harlem we have a number of black-owned banks here. Carver. Yes, yes. And a, a lot of people have opted to at least, you know, if, if they're not transferring all of their money in there, they do help fund these these smaller options. So on that note, there is stuff that we can do, but I do we, we do have to take a break. When we come back, Alyssa will be breaking it down on the fear, bear, 
act right fair. here. Fair. Fair. Bear. Not fear. Act <laughs> right here. Fair. Beer. fair. I, I'm not saying it again. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Break. That's uh, one bourbon, one scotch, and of course, one beer by uh, George Thurgood. Another old song, bringing you all the hits today. We got war, money, and beer. Um, so uh, this is Alyssa. I'm here to tell you about the Fair Beer Act. Um, like I said uh, at the beginning of the show, when we first, uh, Selena and I were first talking about this, um, you know, I sort of seemed a little skeptical. Uh, and then upon further research, I my skepticism was confirmed. So I'm going to give you an introduction, tell you what the actual act is, and then tell you why I think it's not something we should drink to and give you an alternative that I think is a better piece of legislation. So earlier this year, a bipartisan group of senators and congressmen introduced a piece of legislation that was called the Fair Brewers Excise and Economic Relief Act of 2015, or the Fair Beer Act. It's a reform piece of legislation that would create a graduated tax structure for brewers and simplify the tax codes for people who brew beer. According to the beer industry, uh, the lobbyist group, the Beer Institute, the federal tax on beer is a major contributor to the total tax burden when it comes to beer and that there's an estimated 40 percent of the retail price of buying a beer, which essentially means that when you go to buy a single beer, 40 percent of the price that you're paying on that beer goes to pay the taxes that uh, all the different people from the bars to the brewers have to pay. Uh, So what does this bill do? Well, the Fair Beer Act would simplify and reform the federal beer tax for companies that brew and import beer, and it would apply to all beer companies ranging from large national brewers to small single, like, brew pubs or microbreweries, or craft breweries as we know them. Under the bill, regardless of the beer brand or the style the consumer buys, the federal tax they would pay on the pint for a six-pack or for a case would be completely graduated, and it would be based on a simple graduated formula. This formula in this law would be helped, uh, it, it is supposedly, or allegedly aimed at helping small brewers who would have their federal excise tax reduced from $7 per barrel to $0 per barrel. Um, and it would eliminate the federal excise tax for those people, um, but then for those for anybody who produces up to 7,143 barrels of beer. And then for every barrel produced between 7,143 and 60,000 barrels, so those are mid-sized brewers, they would pay three fifty a barrel taxes. And if you are a large brewer, 60000 barrels or to 2 million barrels or above, you would pay $16 a barrel. After 2 million barrels, you would pay $18. So it's sort of like a progressive tax, which usually seems like something that we would get behind. Um, Now, the purpose, but I'm going to tell you why we shouldn't in a minute. The purpose of this law is that it supposedly aims to protect beer workers. Back in the 1990s, the federal beer tax was doubled and about 60,000 people lost their jobs because the industry could not uh, I guess, survive this big tax hike, and they had to lay people off. Uh, so what the Fair Beer Act would do would completely remove this excise tax for the smaller breweries, as I already pointed out, and it would help to encourage the growth of small businesses and remove barriers for new entrants into the marketplace, which means if Stanley and I wanted to start a brewery, it would make it easier for people like Stanley and I to be able to do so because there wouldn't be so many tax regulations that we would have to comply with in order to enter the business. Um, as you may or may not know, beer is a huge business in this country. It contributes nearly oh, yeah. $250 billion to the, the economy, and it supports jobs for over 2 million American workers. Everyone directly in the beer industry 
such as brewers, uh, grain growers, manufacturers, distributors, and sale clerks at the grocery store uh, and convenience stores, but it also supports other industries like agriculture, marketing, manufacturing, transportation, financial services, uh, groceries, restaurants, and retail. So the beer industry takes up a large segment of the market. Now, getting to the crux of where we're at and the most important thing, which is, is this a good idea? And I'm going to say no. Why? Um, there's actually another piece of legislation that is very similar. It's called the Small Brew Act. And if we're really concerned about small brewers, which is sort of what the Fair Beer Act is couched in, then we would be better off supporting the Small Brew Act instead of supporting the Fair Beer Act. So I'll give you a little background on that. The Small Brew Act was actually introduced prior to the Fair Beer Act. This was back in February. And it was introduced as a way to help small businesses grow and to take away some of the barriers for people to enter the market, like I said, if we wanted to start a brewery. Um, However, another bipartisan group of senators and congresspeople felt that it wasn't fair because it only gave tax breaks to small businesses. It didn't give tax breaks to the big four. Um, And so they created the Fair Beer Act as a response to the Small Brew Act because they felt that the tax should be graduated for everybody. Uh, So according to Craft Beer Promoting Trade Group, which is the Brewers Association, they say craft brewers make up a large number of the breweries, but 89.5% of the beer market is still controlled by the top four companies. Um, And they say that the Small Brew Act, uh, which is supported by the Brewers Association, it was designed to restructure taxes to encourage growth for small breweries only um, because the fair the craft beer industry contributes three point sorry thirty three point nine billion dollars to the U.S. economy. Now the Fair Beer Act would aid the craft brew industry as I pointed out, but it goes a step further than its counterpoint, the Small Brew Act, in that it cuts taxes entirely for craft brewers up to a certain size. But um, it also is supported by multinational companies like Anheuser-Busch, which owns Budweiser, Miller Coors, um, and the Beer Institute, which is the big lobby group, which lobbies for the beer industry as a whole. So why would, here's the catch, right? Why would these organizations want to eliminate tax breaks on their rivals, right? They would want their rivals not to be able to compete with them. Um, Well, the reason why the big four actually support this piece of legislation is because the Fair Beer Act also includes huge tax breaks for large brewers. So I told you there was a catch. I thought there was a catch on Thursday night when I spoke to Selena about it. And sure enough, there is a catch, which is unlike the Small Brew Act, which is only aimed at small and mid-sized breweries to help them grow, the Fair Beer Act... um, like I said, gives these huge tax breaks. Um, So essentially, the Fair Beer Act is a red herring, right? It proposes an unrealistic amount of tax cuts that predominantly will benefit the biggest players in the industry, the big breweries who cut jobs, shift profits offshore, and in some cases are actually owned by foreign controlled conglomerates, and its extreme tax cuts make it very unlikely to pass. Uh, If legislatures and business people are advocating for the Fair Beer Act over the Small Brew Act, they're actually backing a loser. Um, And in my opinion, and I think the opinion of the Brewers Association, if people really want to act um, and to help small craft brewers with tax relief, then they should support the Small Brew Act instead of the Fair Beer Act. 
big corporations are always looking to increase their profits. Motivated by greed, they just want another tax break. I mean, how much richer, how much more money can you make? They already, they dominate, what, nearly 90% of the beer market itself, like Alyssa said? That's ridiculous that they would reintroduce this legisla- legislation so that they and say that it's unfair to them. What's unfair is that they're monopolizing the market. I agree. I mean, oh, that's God, what it comes down horrible. to. Is, you know, and not only are they monopolizing the market, as I said, they're, t- they're taking their profits, sending them overseas so they don't have to pay taxes on them. And they're the- shipping the jobs, certain jobs that they can send overseas. Um, and, you know, and like I said, some of them are actually foreign-owned companies. They're not even controlled by American companies. The com- beer isn't that good. Have you ever tasted Coors Light? It tastes like... the. Like horse pee. And yeah. what about Heineken? He- no, Heineken's, Heineken's is, is, actually is Heineken's pretty good. And Heineken's an imported beer. It's not okay. a, it's not a domestic um so we're actually yeah, so to clarify that point, we're actually not talking about foreign imported beers. So we're not talking about Coronas or Heineken's or Amstels or um, you know, anything that comes in. We're talking only about American beer companies, American beer brewers that are here in the United States. Yep. And you ever have Bud Light? I call it Bud Light water. It is water. Yeah, when I order a Bud Light, I say, can I have a water? And they always know what I want. Put it this Stop. way. Drink craft beer, support the Craft Brew Act, and support, I'm sorry, the Small Brew Act, and support your local small businesses um, without giving major handouts to these big four. Yes. And drink IPAs. Oh, and on that note, guys, we I have to say goodbye to you. But if you miss us that much, you will subscribe to our iTunes podcast at LYVBH Radio No Space. You can also check out our website, LYVBH.com. Of course, that means Let Your Voice Be Heard, the acronym. And we'll see you next week. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. Squat. Overseas, for your boy's show, so you get my name, you're talking crazy, man.